and welcome to the Pediatric Anesthesia Journal's featured article of the month podcast for January 2022. These monthly podcasts are published on the journal's website, and you can also subscribe to them via iTunes, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Dr. Devnath Chatterjee, and I'm one of the journal's education editors. This month's featured article is entitled Anesthesia for Pediatric Rigid Bronchoscopy and Related Airway Surgery Tips and Tricks. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome the authors, Drs. Jue Wong, James Payton, and Michael Hernandez. All of them are pediatric anesthesiologists at Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome to this podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Dave. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk about our work. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Dave. So let's get started. Rigid bronchoscopy for an airway evaluation is one of the most common airway procedures in children, and the anesthetic management can be challenging. Your article focuses on the anesthetic techniques for the different types of rigid bronchoscopy in children. Let's start with the dynamic three-phase bronchoscopy for the evaluation of tracheobronchomalacia. Can you please describe the procedure and your preferred anesthetic technique? I'd be happy to. We developed the dynamic three-phase bronchoscopy technique at Boston Children's Hospital in order to better assess the degree of tracheobronchomalacia in pediatric patients. All three phases are done under direct laryngoscopy and rigid bronchoscopy using a ventilating bronchoscope. The first phase is shallow breathing. Here, the patient is under deep general anesthesia in order to assess gross vocal cord motion, airway anatomy, mechanical compression of the airway from nearby structures, and samples of airway secretions are taken if there are any present. The anesthetic is done by a combination of inhalational anesthetic agents and intravenous agents like propofol. Long-acting anesthetic agents such as dexmedetomidine and ketamine are avoided in order to facilitate a rapid transition to phase two. The second phase is the induced cough. This is done under light general anesthesia in order to induce the patient to cough or valsalva to see the degree of tracheobronchomalacia and airway collapse. To facilitate this, all anesthetic agents are turned off at the end of phase one in order to allow the patient to slowly lighten and cough. Phase three is airway distension, which is done once again under deep general anesthesia. After phase two, the patient is given a bolus of IV anesthetic agent, which is most commonly propofol, with or without a neuromuscular blocking agent. The trachea is then distended with pressure up to 40 centimeters of water in order to visualize recurrent tracheoesophageal fistulas, residual tracheal diverticuli, and any aberrant bronchi not previously seen. This is done by connecting the anesthesia circuit to the ventilating bronchoscope and slowly turning the APL valve up to 40 centimeters of water. And this completes the dynamic three-phase bronchoscopy. Thank you. Um, that definitely seems very complex. Now, the anesthetic and the surgical goals vary for each phase of the bronchoscopy. And have you noticed any complications while the children are coughing with the rigid bronchoscope in the airway? Great question and definitely a big concern. So far, we have done hundreds of these bronchoscopies and we do not have any reports of tracheal injury or complications. That said, we are in the process of performing a more rigorous analysis of our data regarding potential complications, and we will share our findings when they're ready. Thank you. So moving on to the suspension laryngoscopy for every procedures, which requires a motionless surgical field and preservation of spontaneous breathing, can you share practical tips and tricks of, for these cases? 
Thanks, Dave. I think the first thing to say is it's it's not necessarily a completely motionless technique when you are uh, keeping a child breathing spontaneously. There is a tiny bit of movement. So the first tip and trick to say is you need to know your surgeon and you need to have an in-depth conversation with them preoperatively to work out exactly what surgical conditions they need. Um, most of the time, we do do these cases with uh, the children, the infants breathing spontaneously and in suspension. So they require to be anesthetized deeply enough um, so that they can tolerate the suspension laryngoscopy, which is actually quite stimulating in itself. Um, but also they have to be breathing well enough to maintain oxygenation and a reasonable amount of ventilation during the case. So the first thing I do is talk to the surgeons, find out what they're going to do, exactly what conditions they need, and work out if it's appropriate to have a spontaneously ventilating patient um, for them to be working on. Most of the time it is. I think we purchased a, a new monsoon jet ventilator about eight or nine years ago, and I have not used it in a single case. And virtually every single case I do, I do with spontaneous ventilation. Obviously, you cannot use um, volatile agents to keep the patients asleep, so you have to use intravenous agents. And there are a variety of techniques that have been described. Probably the most common in our hospital is a combination of propofol and remifentanil. Um, I tend to use those two as infusions and at the start of a case also give a small bolus of ketamine uh, and a, a small bolus of dexmedetomidine. And by small, I mean 0.5 to 1 milligrams per kilo of ketamine uh, and uh, 0.5 to 1 mite per kilo of Presidex because I find that reduces the amount of propofol I need and it's really the propofol that enables you to have the correct depth of anesthesia and then low-dose remifentanil around about 0 0.05 mics per kilo per minute up to a maximum of about 0.1 mics per kilo per minute, which enables you to maintain spontaneous respiration um, with adequate depth of anesthesia. So it comes down to striking a balance between keeping them breathing spontaneously yet at an appropriate depth so they tolerate the rigid bronchoscopy. Yes, and the probably the most important part is at the start of the case before you put them into suspension is making sure you've got the correct depth of anesthesia. So it often means saying to the surgeons, just sit down, twiddle your thumbs for five minutes uh, and do not mess around with the airway until I'm happy that they're in a position where you can perform a laryngoscopy and, and set up your suspension. And if you get that right, um, then the rest of the case goes quite smoothly. And it's then you can ask the surgeons to topicalize the airway as well, because if you add in um, a good amount of topical local anesthetic, either two or 4% lidocaine, that can actually help with your uh, laryngeal motion and laryngeal reactivity as well. So the combination of, of topical local anesthetic with the right anesthetic, um, and you can do the vast majority of, of these cases with the kids breathing spontaneously. Can you comment on oxygen and sufflation during the bronchoscopy? Well, it depends on the type of suspension rig you have, first of all. So there are different types of suspension rigs. Most of them will have a port available for you to insufflate oxygen through. I tend to take a, a, a 6 ET tube and cut it and hook it up to 
the uh, suspension rig and then place my anesthetic circuit onto that because that enables me to give a mixture of oxygen and air and decrease the uh, inspired oxygen concentration uh, instead of just using the auxiliary oxygen's port which uh, a lot of people do you can also use nasal cannula to give uh, supplemental oxygen but it depends on the nature of the patient's airway as to whether or not that's going to actually get through and reach the larynx so most of the time i will hook up my anesthetic breathing circuit to the suspension rig and then have um, an oxygen flow usually below 50% um, heading down towards the larynx through the suspension rig. Thank you, Jamie. So moving on to the next category of triple endoscopy for an aerodigestive evaluation, which includes a rigid langoscopy and a bronchoscopy, a flexible bronchoscopy with bronchoalveolar lavage, and an upper GI endoscopy. What is your preferred anesthetic technique? Well, Dave, um, I think the triple endoscopy is kind of a unique procedure in that none of the individual components of uh, the full procedure are particularly long or particularly involved. However, they all require different conditions and each of the proceduralists comes from a different background typically and will have a uh, different goal in terms of what they're looking for. Similarly, all these patients will come with some form of clinical question or conundrum, uh, hence the need to investigate triple endoscopic exams to figure out exactly what might be bothering them. So when it comes to the question of what anesthetic technique to use, um, I don't think that there's necessarily a gold standard anesthetic technique for triple endoscopy. And what I would say for what we do typically, um, at least what I do in my own practice, is try and figure out exactly what proceduralists are trying to accomplish. So for instance, in the case of the rigid laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy, the question of whether you're looking for anything dynamic, uh, what exactly uh, the evaluation will entail, um, is important because if the patient needs to be spontaneously breathing, that's a different anesthetic than if it's a fixed anatomic survey where the patient can be apneic or may even be requested to be apneic. Uh, in cases where there's an interest in looking at dynamic, either vocal cord motion or evidence of tracheal bronchomalacia, uh, typically I find that use of volatile anesthesia um, and uh, continuing a mask induction, varying depth to allow laryngoscopy and rigid bronchoscopy is most helpful. Um, this is obviously best for shorter procedures. So if you're in a longer procedure with those kinds of conditions, then I think what uh, Jamie had described earlier for suspension laryngoscopy would be more appropriate. But in these cases, typically it's a very quick look. The second part of the triple endoscopy would typically be either pulmonary or uh, gastroenterology doing their exam. Uh, the pulmonary side with the flexible bronchoscopy is interesting because pulmonologists may request that um, you either not intubate the patient at all and have a natural airway for them to inspect from the oropharynx down to uh, the, the uh, main stem bronchi and beyond. Or they may ask for a supraglottic airway device so that they can fit a larger caliber flexible fiberscope in the device and also get a better exam um, of the upper airway. Or you may 
endotracheally intubate with a tracheal tube and have them uh, go through that. And all those requests have to be balanced with the patient's comorbidities and your comfort with those techniques, um, realizing that trying to do that in a smaller child with intrinsic lung disease um, and doing that with a natural airway or subglottic airway device will be um, much trickier than if you have a tracheal tube in place. If you have a tracheal tube in place, my standard practice is to give a bit of muscle relaxation, some neuromuscular blockade, because uh, I think that does make the rest of the procedure easier. And um, my practice for the GI endoscopy is to intubate the patients with the tracheal tube, um, although endoscopy with a supraglottic airway device is, is well described in the literature and it is an option. Um, I find that uh, the, the juice may not be worth the squeeze there. And my final point for the anesthetic is that uh, there's a theme in our paper about communication. And I think in this procedure, the triple endoscopy, because you have three different proceduralists, uh, typically, at least at our institution, requires a, a lot of coordination. And you are kind of the, the chief in the kitchen, and you have people working at different stations, and the patient has to be cared for holistically, um, whereas the proceduralists are coming in for a very specific, often very time-limited um, point of interaction. And so I think coordinating not only the preoperative evaluation, but figuring out where the patient goes postoperatively, uh, at least in my practice, tends to fall on the anesthesia provider. And so that's an important consideration when you discuss with the team and, and plan for what the patient's disposition will be afterwards. Thanks, Mike. I have a follow-up question regarding the sequence of events. At our institution, we usually perform the flexible bronchoscopy first, followed by the rigid bronchoscopy by the ENT surgeon and the upper endoscopy by the gastroenterologist. What is the sequence of events at your institution? Most of the time, we start with the direct laryngoscopy and rigid bronchoscopy. It just seems most convenient to turn the bed 90 degrees and pass the airway over to the surgeon at that time. Um, and then the majority of time will intubate uh, with a tracheal tube after that. And then whether it's GI um, doing their endoscopy or pulmonary doing their flexible bronchoscopy um, kind of depends. The one caveat to that, uh, particularly when a bronchial alveolar lavage is performed, is that you need to be mindful that in some of these patients, particularly with lung disease um, who are presenting with mysterious lung disease of unknown origin, if you're providing a bronchial alveolar lavage to their lungs, they may not respond well from a respiratory standpoint. And so that may color your ability to provide uh, the same anesthetic for the endoscopy. So for instance, if you have the BAL and then you're having oxygenation ventilation issues, then the placement of an endoscope in the esophagus, particularly in a small child, may further complicate that. So that may color your order. Um, but I think for a lot of times, besides the ENT or oral service starting for us, it's a, it's a toss-up for uh, pulmonary and GI. Thank you. So finally, rigid bronchoscopy for open airway surgery, such as laryngotracheal reconstruction, cricotracheal resection, or a slide tracheoplasty. These are complex cases, and often, as Mike mentioned, close communication with the surgeons is critical. Can one of you please comment on the importance of these close communications during these cases? And do you have some kind of a huddle before you start these cases? 
Absolutely, Dave. You really cannot stress how important closed loop communication between the anesthesia team and the surgical team is during open airway surgery. The surgery requires constant airway manipulation with the possibility of losing the airway at any time. So both teams must be ready to transition between different airway techniques and ready to implement a backup rescue plan. Particularly, as you've mentioned, during the especially high risk uh, points in the surgery, it is helpful to pause have a some sort of timeout or huddle, as you've mentioned, with specifically the risk, what the procedure is going to be, and what the next steps will. Should anything go wrong, the backup plan for each member of the team involved should be explicitly explained before the procedure uh, is allowed to go on. So before we wrap up, any concluding remarks from either of you? I would just say thanks, uh, Dave, uh, for inviting us to do this. And uh, it's my hope that uh, everyone enjoys reading the article, and I really think that we are trying to highlight uh, the critical role that the anesthesiologist provides in these type of procedures, particularly with shared airway, and how much of an impact that expertise and uh, our uh, clinical care can have on uh, patient outcomes. So thank you for the invitation. You're most welcome. Well, this has been a lovely discussion. Thank you so much again for agreeing to participate in this podcast. We look forward to more contributions from you and your team. This wraps up our featured article of the month podcast for January, 2022. This article will be available for free on the journal's website soon. Follow us on Twitter on at PD Anesthesia. Please join us for next month's featured article of the month podcast. Until then, cheers.